Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The ProNoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the P3 Podcast. Today's guest is somebody I've known for 10 or 12 years now, although we haven't seen much of each other over those last 10 or 12 years. We are forced into a bond because of an experience we had some 10 years ago, which we'll touch on later on. But a fascinating story, fascinating background, which we'll allude to later on and get a little bit more information on. But where he's come from is a successful career within the Royal Air Force, our little event, shall we call it, in the middle peak. And then where he's at right now, he's the director of the Olympic Oval, an elite performance center over in Calgary in Canada. So we're really privileged to have him. So thanks so much for joining us today, Pete. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. And thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. It's a great opportunity to reconnect with you. And as you said, we haven't seen each other based on distance and circumstance, but it's good to reconnect as always. I'm happy to share a story if I can. You being Irish, telling a story, that sort of takes me back to having a pint of Guinness in my hand. You and I sat there chewing the fat. So what better way of catching up than jumping on a podcast and sharing it with a few people, that's for sure. I think some of the themes we're going to talk about is obviously there's a military connection as well. We were in the Air Force together, albeit we didn't serve together. A lot of training and development, a lot of career progression, a lot of leadership, a lot of coaching goes into that. And we know that sets the tone and sets the bar, I think, for things you've gone on to. And, and probably from my perspective, I would say it was one of the catalysts for you to be able to go and do your job of what you're doing now. But it wasn't the only one. I think things you put yourself out there to do within your own career have allowed you to become the director of the centre you're at now within Elite Performance. So tell us a little bit about that first part of your career in terms of Royal Air Force, in terms of your role and exposure within that. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in Belfast in the 70s and 80s. And at that time, you know, it wasn't a particularly pleasant time in Northern Ireland. That's maybe understating it. And my wife, she laughs whenever we call it the Troubles, because it wasn't just the Troubles, it was something much bigger than that. At that time, I got quite tired of those troubles back then. And I thought, well, I want to do something about it. Prior to that, when I was growing up, I do remember going on a family holiday, the first ever family holiday that we went on. And it was, of course, to the south of Spain. And these were back in the days whenever you could ask the cabin crew to show you up to the cockpit. Times have changed since then. But I guess I was really fortunate at that time that the cabin crew sort of whisked me up to the front. And I was probably only seven or eight at the time. And the captain and the crew made me feel really welcome. And they sat me down in the jump seat and they said, do you want to stay for the landing? And of course, my eyes were on stalks and I didn't know what was happening. And it was just like boyhood dream, really. So once we touched down and landed, I sort of had this meme in my head where I said, I want to do some of that. Fast forward to 1819, growing up as an Irish Catholic in Belfast with an aspiration to fly and do something about all the troubles. I sort of thought, well, where's the, where are the career options? And British Airways wasn't recruiting at the time and neither were the other airlines. So I elected to join the Royal Air Force. I applied once. They said, we sort of like you, but you're not quite ready. I think that was the polite way of saying you haven't quite cut it. So go away and get some life experience and come back in a year or so. So I went to university in Liverpool, did a business and Spanish degree and joined the University Air Squad, which for those that don't know, is a reservist unit within the university system that allows and provides opportunities for people to learn to fly and sample the Royal Air Force. And it's a really good recruitment tool for the Royal Air Force. So I did that and learned to fly and I reapplied to join the Air Force again because it's not just a given because you're in the University Air Squad and you have to go through the recruitment process again. And I was successful and I got in and after university and graduation, I went into officer training at Cranwell as a trainee officer and a navigator. Little did I know where I would end up. 
Fast forward three years from joining, I found myself on a frontline helicopter unit as a navigator flying the Puma helicopter and back in Northern Ireland. So I get to check the box where I was able to feel that I was doing something about the trouble, but maybe I wasn't in hindsight. I don't know. Others can be the judge of that. And I spent three years in Northern Ireland just learning the trade of navigation and flying a fairly complex helicopter in fairly austere conditions. After that, I moved over to Royal Air Force Benson in Oxfordshire, and we did a predominantly deployable role where we were sent out to different parts of the world. I sort of volunteered to do a sort of secondary job in survival. And I guess that was my first exposure to training and what does training look like for people? Albeit it's a bit of a bizarre way to sort of volunteer into the training environment. But, you know, long story short, I qualified as a survival instructor and then an Arctic warfare instructor, which really meant spending two consecutive winters with the Royal Marines, carrying very heavy packs over long distances and being just bloody miserable. Um, <laughs> but it was a means to an end and it allowed me to go back to Norway every year and train people in how to survive fairly tough environmental conditions if they were ever to find themselves in that. And then in 2003, I, my then wife found herself pregnant with our first child and had a career decision to make in the Air Force. Do we continue flying and do I spend all the time away? You know, Afghanistan was kicking off again. Iraq was getting busy. And I elected to sort of step away from flying and move up to Royal Air Force Cranwell to do a training officer job. And I stayed there for seven years and I just loved it. It was an opportunity to work with your former colleagues in physical education in the Royal Air Force to really deliver training programs around leadership for junior officers, for trainee pilots, predominantly and trainee aircrew. And I loved it. I just thrived in that environment. I liked the outdoors, the experiential side of leadership. And I did have an eye on what next after the Air Force. I was coming to the end of a 16-year career. Four years away from that, I was thinking like, what the heck am I going to do with my life afterwards? And you and I have both been there, and as have many others before us and will do after us. And it's a big step and it's a big transition. I sort of followed my heart and said, look, I really love sport. I played representative sport in the Air Force. I was pretty average at it, let's be frank. Certainly wasn't as good as soccer or football as maybe the likes of you were. And, you know, I sort of had a passion for endurance sports. I got into triathlon, did an Ironman at one point. That was pretty brutal. And I thought, well, I'll never do that again. But of course, like most Ironmen, you sort of get the bug again and you go back and do it again. And so I did a couple of Ironman events. And alongside that, I started a master's degree in sport and exercise science. So I guess that was me following my real true passion. I first thought it was going to be flying, but that probably wasn't the best of fits for me. So I said, well, I'm going to make a career choice here and career change and a transition. So I was doing that for the last four years of my military career. And then in 2009, somebody happened to drop me an email from the cycling club that I used to cycle with. And they'd heard about me doing Ironman. And they said, have you ever thought about doing the race across America? And I never heard of it, to be quite honest. I Googled it, as you do, and saw this thing. The headline was the toughest race in the world. And I thought, yeah, there's no race too tough. And we both know that we sort of at our words, or at least I at my words, in hindsight. And so the story goes from there. They sort of, the seed was planted in my head about this race. And I bumped into a guy I used to train with by the name of John Crew. He was a squad leader at the time of the Air Force and another triathlete who I knew through the Barrier Triathlon community. And I said to him in the gym one afternoon, hey, John, have you ever heard about this thing called the RAM? And he said, oh, yeah, I know about that. And I said, well, do you want to do it? And he said, yeah, sure. And that's how it started. That was the seed being planted about doing the RAM. And so we thought, oh, right, okay. So there's this race called Race Across America, or the acronym RAM. It's a nonstop bike race, coast to coast, completely amateur. 
It's supported by a support crew or crews. And there's a time limit depending on the category that you enter. And for John and I, we thought we'd put up a four-person team and go do it. That was the start of it. And then we recruited a team and that's where you and I bumped into one another. And we put an all-persons bulletin out for crew members of the right caliber to come and join the team. And I think one of the criteria was that you had to have a sense of humor. And so we started and it took us a year to plan it and execute it. We had to find sponsorship. There was a huge logistical component to the race and maybe we can talk about that. And then there was the training for those that were going to be on the road pushing the hard miles. For those that are listening that maybe don't know much about race across America, give us some statistics. Where to start? Where to finish? What's the overall distance? What's the altitude climb over that duration? And what was your target? Yeah, for time? sure. So uh, it's a non-stop coast-to-coast race, starting Oceanside in California and finishing in Annapolis and Maryland on the East Coast. So west to east, and it crosses 14 states. I think there's something in the region of 100,000 meters of climbing in the whole race. And as we know, it goes through virtually every type of climate and terrain that you could imagine from, you know, seaside flatlands to high mountains to flat plains of canvas into the humidity of Illinois. And then, you know, the kicker at the end is, of course, you have to cross another mountain range called the Appalachians, which some people may or may not know are pretty damn steep (laughs) before it finishes. And in and amongst that, you've got wildlife, you've got climatic concerns and issues to deal with. I don't know if you recall, Phil, on day one, we had to go through a plague of locusts before we entered into the desert. And things like that, when you come from a temperate environment like the UK, where the most aggressive thing is maybe the driver on the road and not the wildlife, These are big sort of cultural shocks for us, and they certainly were for me. And for sure, there was a whole bunch of wildlife. I remember doing one descent in the Rockies. It was pitch black. And of course, the rider at the time always has to stay in the lights of the following vehicle. That's one of the rules of Race Across America for nighttime operations. And I remember sitting, and I don't know if you were in the crew at the time, or whether you were in the Winnebago, but the crew were calling out the speeds. And I think we were topping out at about 56 miles per hour at night going downhill. And I remember seeing out of my eye on the left-hand side of the road, it was either a moose or an elk. I've got no idea. And thankfully it didn't move, but I was petrified of things like that, just darting across the road and just they could end your days. There was a whole bunch of things that happens even during the race that I can recall, and even more that the other riders in the other part of the team could recall as well. So it was a fantastic opportunity and one of those life experiences that sometimes people have the good fortune to repeat and I'm not sure we will ever have, but maybe we might. The legs are still pumping the tires. So Yeah. So I was based in Italy at the time. The calling notice came out, there was four guys, you know, RAF and a team of four. Then there was a few job descriptions in there. You wanted like a mechanic, you wanted masseuse for obvious reasons, you wanted a chef, you wanted an all hands person, you wanted a reserve rider, you wanted all sorts. You definitely put a lot of planning into it. I think the reason probably why you picked me is because I ticked a couple of those boxes so I could help and support. If I remember rightly, I just finished a week-long cycle. I'd cycled from Naples to Syracuse in Italy, which was like, I don't know, 1,500, miles in a week or something. It was quite a meaty ride. It was a perfect time. Because I know that one of the lads, I think it was John, had a dodgy knee at the time, so we weren't 100% sure if he was going to be fit to ride. But I must confess, I haven't seen you physically on the bike for that full duration. I think it's harder for the support crew just because of the lack of rest and sleep. They're always doing something. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've done from an energy perspective and from a sleep deprivation perspective. And we can fast forward to the end without giving away how we did. But I don't know if you remember the first night we got back, 
if I remember rightly, it was something like a Saturday afternoon we finished on, if I remember rightly. I hadn't slept like three and a half days. So we'd finished, got over the line, got our medals and stuff, and then we went for a quiet beer, as you do. And then we went to check into the hotel. I think I fell asleep at 5 p.m. on the Saturday and woke up at 9 o'clock Sunday morning without even blinking. Some of the other lads who didn't work the last couple of days were obviously party time on the last night, but I was wiped. It was up there in terms of the compounding of the fatigue at the end of it. It was probably one of the hardest things I've done. And the way I responded at the end of being tired just shows how much everyone had to give from a support group perspectives. Because I think sometimes people don't look at that because don't get me wrong, riding your bike over 3,000 miles for a week or so is unbelievable. But I think the fatigue for everybody plays a big part in everything from delivering the strategy day-to-day decision-making, prioritizing what you need to do, obviously communicating effectively, driving effectively. As a whole concept, I think it's a phenomenal logistical and operational achievement. I couldn't agree more. And it's funny, before you and I jumped on this call, I took the liberty of pulling up the race report that I wrote. I think it was the morning after or the day after. And I fondly remember even writing that report. I mean, it sort of gave me shivers as I was rereading it. But I did make significant mention of the support crew and the contribution of the support crew, you know, the team behind the team. It couldn't be underestimated enough, the significance and the importance of you and the rest of the support crew, without which we couldn't have done what we did. And the whole team couldn't have been successful. And I think as a sort of a takeaway in terms of what drives and what makes successful teams, oftentimes maybe the people in the limelight, whether it's an amateur or professional sport, they get maybe the appreciation or the recognition, and maybe they get the spotlight, whether they want it or not. But oftentimes, there's a huge machine that goes into making one or more people successful in the team. That can transfer from the sporting world, amateur professional, into the commercial world. You know, I see it in my day-to-day job, for sure. But I think going back to a couple of the points you mentioned, Phil, sleep deprivation was certainly something that the port crew had to deal with. The importance of sleep can't be underestimated in terms of performance, because I remember you and the team talking about not only dealing with and coping with sleep deprivation, but also the monotony of driving, because it was pretty monotonous as a driver, I think. But having to do that safely and to do something safely when you're sleep deprived is almost impossible and certainly puts the driver and the crew in that vehicle at risk and also As we all know, we had a couple of instances where some of the drivers were falling asleep and almost running into the back of the riders. So yeah, for sure, sleep deprivation was key. And it certainly is a test of individual character and metal. It tested us, it tested our temperament, it tested our levels of patience, tested our ability to cope with adversity and to deal with change. And I think we as a team were hugely successful because most of us came from a military background, not all, but we sort of jumped through those hoops, if that's the right phrase, in our training, acknowledging the whole team came from different trades and backgrounds in the Royal Air Force. But we'd all been through a similar training machine where we were taught to deal with constant change, how to adapt and think on your feet, how to evaluate and reevaluate what's in front of you, how to make decisions and critical decisions in a time-pressured environment. And all of those skills, I think, served us really well in the race across America. Yeah, I think so. And I have to paint the picture about that safety with the driving. One of the cars has to ride immediately behind the cyclist at any time. So when you talk about monotony, that could be anything from five mile an hour or less going up a hill to 50 mile an hour going downhill. But more often on the flats, it's 16, 17, 18 mile an hour, constantly driving for hour after hour, just looking at the backside of a cyclist, you know, and trying to keep them safe and keep that distance, the safe distance, which if you can imagine doing that for half an hour, never mind for the best part of a week, 
granted we had shifts etc and turned around there was an element of dedication and commitment required for that so let's let people know then so we all as a team we had a set goal which is obviously vitally important if we're going to go and achieve anything which was to break the four-man military team record to get across america and the previous record if i remember was something like seven days four hours or something like that we pretty clearly went well we just want to break seven days have i got the numbers right there yeah, that's pretty much it. That was our outcome that we were shooting for at the time. Is like, let's get under seven days. Once you break that down, seven days into 280 miles per person per day, is that right? I'm not sure if that's the right maths or not, but it's pretty significant. That's a lot of miles to cover. Maybe I haven't got the maths right, actually. It was something like 350 miles a day we had to cover as a team-ish. Yeah. But we did know that nonstop we had to average, it was something like 15.6 or 16 mile an hour. Which means, yeah. granted, most of the lads could hold 18, 19 mile an hour fairly steady in 2021, 20, with a bit of backwind, that we knew what the set goal was. So we roughly knew where we are. And I think for a majority of it, certainly the first two or three days, we were just ahead of it, weren't we? And we knew that. Now would be a good time to share some of our memories from it, because I do have two or three lasting memories that I think some people know and some people don't know, which would be quite funny to share with you, I think. So one of the first incidents we had was the sheer fear of going down the glass elevator from California side into the desert where it was in Matty was riding that not far off over 100 odd K an hour just to send straight down and the cars were struggling to keep up with him and stay in the rules because <laughs> he was just gone and it's one of the most famous descents in the world for cycling because it does go below sea level into the desert. I remember a sandstorm going across the desert, cutting straight across. And if I remember in my memory and in my mind's eye right now, I've got Steve right in front of me again, absolutely battered left to right. So not only was I the reserve rider and I didn't get to ride, was that he then borrowed some of my kit, my arm warmers <laughs> and leg warmers, because he was getting battered by this sandstorm and doing about 13 mile an hour into it. It was horrendous. But then I remember we almost changed shift and the wind changed direction to a tailwind where the guys were just slowly soft pedaling at 30 mile an hour. So it was like these contrast elements of we got like Steve in the back with sand everywhere. So trying to get him sort of cleaned up and Vaselined up to somebody in front. And it might well have been you just ticking over nicely at 30 man. Now we're going, what's all the drama about? <laughs> Another one I remember stepping out, must have been in the desert somewhere. And of course, all us men had to excuse ourselves at some point. I stepped off the road and nearly stepped on a rattlesnake. So that was another one. They were quite common and not ideal when you went in flip-flops either. So that was a Welshman in me thinking, well, nothing's going to kill me out here. But then, yeah, that sort of brought things home. I remember us getting very close to coming back to that average speed we needed. We were definitely slowing right down because everyone was tired and everyone was fatigued. And then if I remember, it might have been day four, we all made a joint committee decision to stay in that motel, if you remember. So the race was going to be nonstop. And we said, why? We're just not going to finish the race at this point. We're certainly not going to hit this target quick bit of maths, let's get six hours in this motel. You guys can get obviously showered properly, get the sand out of you. We can get the bikes turned around. Everyone get three or four hours kept, which I think, to be honest, was a genius decision to make, knowing that rather than fighting and going from 17 to 16 to 15 to 14, when I was just getting tired, we could then lose that six hours, but we could quite easily go up to 17 and 18 again. And that proved the right decision to be made, which is about that flexibility of your plan, isn't it? And in terms of understanding the situation you're in, getting all the information you can, and then making the best possible decision as you can. Do you want your reflections on that specific one as a cyclist when we decided to go, well, let's just get six hours in a hotel? I do remember that moment. I think it was in a car park in scorching heat somewhere, I don't know, in the middle of America. <laughs> I've got no idea which town or city or village it was in. But I just remember us all pulling into the car park and looking around and 
I could certainly tell that we needed to do something different. I think our crew chief at the time, he was doing a great job, but I think he was struggling too with the sleep deprivation. And in his day job, he's a vascular surgeon and a very clever and astute and smart individual. And I think he struggled. He's a little bit sort of outside his comfort zone, just working in that sort of cycling environment. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. But he was the first to confess and say, look, I think we need to do something here. I think if I remember rightly, somebody pulled me aside and said, look, you know, what should we do? And I said, well, we have to just look after the team here. You know, and it comes down to that sort of team task and individual assessment. And the critical need and the priority of the time for us to be successful as a team and to achieve our goal was we need to cater to the team's needs and looking around the team and seeing how tired they were. And there were some short fuses from some people because they were just so sleep deprived. It was evident that we had to stop. And I think teams don't take the opportunity to pause and stop. And I think in reflection, that was probably one of the better decisions that we could have made in the running of that race. We haven't necessarily talked about it. Maybe we should share how we actually did the race. What was our strategy? There are many strategies because people might be thinking, well, you've got four people on bikes. Did they all ride at the same time? Or didn't they? Or what was the strategy? So our strategy based on what we'd learned from previous teams was to divide the four riders into pairs and then one rider would be on the road at any one time and that rider would then proverbially flip-flop or change over with the other rider at his time to be agreed by the pair. I remember doing stints in the Rockies somewhere near Boulder or somewhere like that in Colorado. We were doing like two or three minute stints for a number of reasons. One, we were probably struggling with altitude because we were climbing up to over 12,000 feet. And just the sheer volume of climbing that we were doing, we thought, well, let's just keep the average speed up here to try and attain our goal, but also make the best use of the riders. So we were doing short intervals, which you might think, why the heck are we doing that in a 3,015 mile race? But it was a tactic that worked. Conversely, I do remember when we went into Kansas one night, it was scorching hot, like somewhere near Wichita, I think it was. I was paired up with Steve Duffy and physiologically, he's a different machine to me. I'm a big guy. I'm six foot one, 185 pounds. What's that in stones? I can't remember. A lot. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Too many. Yeah. And um, Steve is, he looks like Mario Pantani and he's a very nimble and strong climber. He hasn't got a lot of body mass and he struggled in the heat initially one night. And he said, look, Pete, I'm on my knees here. So we ended up just having a quick discussion and saying, okay, well, I'll just stay out for an hour and a half, two hours. You stay in the van and get some rest. And We worked in our pairs like that. We had good communication. We were just prepared to, you know, adopt and overcome and adapt to the circumstances, whatever we were faced with. So I think back to that as a great example of when teams are together, whether they're small teams or large teams, having really good communication and having the ability to adapt and flex. Those sorts of principles and constructs were certainly ones that made us successful. Yeah, and utilised each other's strengths as well, because I think when you go into an event like that and experience, you have your good days or your good hours and your bad hours, don't you? You do dovetail and you have to support one another. So just to paint that picture again, so there was two on the road, if you like. So one cycling on the road and one in the immediate support car. And the other two guys were in normally in the Winnebago, resting, eating, sleeping, showering. And we had another support car then that would do all the logistics. It was a full operation, wasn't it? Dovetailing, shooting ahead, leapfrogging one another, trying to find a designated spot to make sure we were swapping over and all the kit and food and everything was set up. It's not fair to say that it went to plan. The plan helped because we had a set goal and we had a process that we could adjust and adapt and overcome. And actually, when we had that six hours rest, 
we went back to the plan because everyone was in a better place. So we still had that centralized priority of what we were going to be doing. So everybody knew their job, everybody knew their role. But the one thing I do remember is you were saying, well, actually, one of the big climbs, all four of you were out, if you remember, doing two or three minute intervals because it was day five, day six. Everybody was tired. Nobody was going to ride it on their own. I think Matty had a good day, if I remember. He was particularly strong that day. But everybody was doing two or three minutes. It was four of you leapfrogging each other with the two cars, a big Winnebago waiting at the top with ice drinks, ice buckets for your head and all sorts. And then the two cars leapfrogging around you. But it was a fantastic thing to see, especially when you get to the top. Because the other thing I think you've got to understand is when you're going to experience like this or anything in life, you've got to celebrate those wins, haven't you? Because yes, we had a bad day 24 hours before. We were all tired, fatigued. We had to stay in a hotel for six hours, which could have easily seen as failure. But we knew it was part of the process. The evidence was there. It was logical conversations. And then we woke up early hours and got going again. And everybody knew what they needed to do. And this leads me on to one of my other stories. So after we were refreshed, after our six-hour break, did I ever tell you about me getting lost in the Winnebago? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, so to paint the picture for people at home, if you've seen Meet the Fokker, it's one of these massive buses. It was almost one of them. It was huge. So we had a tactic where you'd have a driver of the Winnebago and then a buddy sat next to him to keep him awake because obviously the last thing you want to do is crash anything, never mind a Winnebago, when you've got eight other people potentially in the back and two riders sleeping. And it was my turn to drive. So I got in the front seat and it was late at night, two, three in the morning. We were following the sat-nav of the GPS. And the guy who was with me was absolute knackered. And I was like, look, I've literally just started my shift. I've had 20 minutes kip. I'm fine. Jump in the back, go and get a half hour, set your alarm, but come back in half an hour because I'll probably start dipping this in the middle of the night. And then we're driving the Winnebago, GPS says turn left. And I'm like, this doesn't look right here. It's going to go down a dirt track. Sat nav's been right so far. Let's follow it. So I turned left down this dirt track and it was a steep 30% decline. And I was like, I'm not happy with this. If I'm going to reverse, I need to reverse out now. So I sort of zoomed in on the map and I could see the road was a couple of hundred meters ahead. I went, no, I'll just go straight forward. It's fine. But if you remember in the Winnebago, there's curtains behind you. So nobody could see anything that was going on. They must have just thought I was stopped at lights or something. So I went down this steep, steep hill, got to the bottom, started scraping the side of the Winnebago's because the trees were sticking out a little bit. I was like, don't scratch it, don't scratch it. Thinking of the expenditure at the end, there must have been this little farm thing at the right hand side. And then there was a Ford and I was like, oh my days. And there's no way to turn around. I'm not reversing back up that hill. I'll blow the clutch out. I'm going to have to go through this Ford and then hammer it up the other hill. The Ford wasn't that deep. Obviously, I checked it first, but drove through it, come up the other side, put my foot to the floor, and the engine just got louder and louder and louder, and the Winnebago was getting slower and slower and slower, and it was going 10 degrees up, 15 degrees up, 20 degrees, 30 degrees up, and all of a sudden, it flattened out towards the end, and no word of a lie, it flew out onto the main road, which was the road I should have been on. I swung a left, almost like a Dukes of Hazard movie, right? The vehicle started shaking, just straightened up, and the curtains opened, went, everything all right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, fine. Because the road straight ahead was just a highway. And it was like absolute comedy sketch. I think I told a couple of the lads at the end of it. And they were like, we thought something was going on. Because obviously we were rocking around in our beds. We were like, we're supposed to be on like major roads here. But you couldn't have made it up. It was like something from a movie. But obviously you riders were completely oblivious to that. But talk about decision and commitment. Because that could have ruined the whole thing. Where are you, Phil? Stuck in a Ford with a Winnebago. Yeah, we'll catch up with you at some point. I don't have any, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. I don't know where I was, whether I was sleeping or on the road somewhere else. But yeah, that's phenomenal. I do remember there was an American team, Team 4 Mill, was it? Is that what they were called? Yeah, the American guys, yeah. They were an eight-man team from the US military. And we sort of connected with them before the race and before leaving the UK. And then we got together just at the start line. And they were an eight-person team. And of course, we thought, oh, there's four of us. There's eight of them. 
let's challenge them for the military trophy. And, you know, we laid down the gauntlet. Little did we know that we stood very little chance of even beating an eight-person team of super strong riders. They were machines, you know, I think they were almost verging on professional riders. And it's funny how, because we did have that banter, but that banter soon dissipated after day two. Talk about Winnebago stories. They ran their Winnebago off the road and that ended their race for them. Luckily, no one was seriously injured. That race in and of itself, it was super fun. There were lots of instances where things could go wrong quite quickly. I don't know if you remember the Olympic medalist, Steve Redgrave, was also in the race in another team. It was in a Rafa team, crashed. wasn't it? Was it a Rafa team? That's right. Yeah, they were sponsored by Rafa, the clothing manufacturer. And he crashed. You might recall in Annapolis, two days after we finished, they sort of came in and he was all banged up and in a mess. And, you know, luckily he was okay. But um, he was very fortunate to get off with maybe a broken collarbone and some cuts and grazes. Yeah, it just goes to show things go really badly wrong very quickly. You have to be on your toes. We had our own little incident, didn't we, where I think if I remember it was day five where John had a crash and injured himself. I can't remember what happened. What was the story behind that? I think I was in the Winnebago. Then. Yeah, we'd stopped in a place, I don't know whether it was appropriate or not, called Effingham. So Steve and I had done a changeover. Matt and John got on the road. One of the rules whenever you do a changeover of any rider is that the front wheel of the rider that's oncoming has to change over with the front wheel of the rider that's offgoing. Otherwise, there's some distance that's declared null and void and it could compromise the integrity of the race. So John and Matt had this thing where they would sort of slap each other on the back or they'd do a high five or whatever. And then we just got out of Effingham and they did this high five and their handlebars collided and locked. And of course, both of them came down. And we heard on the radio that like there's been a crash and it was like, what are we going to do now, you know, and managed to get a car out there and John was in a pretty bad way, broken collarbone. So he got whisked off to hospital and Matt was okay. I think he was just a bit bruised, but he was okay to carry on. But we had to make a pretty critical decision. I'm talking about planning. You mentioned it earlier. The plan, like all plans, only sustains first contact with the enemy. And we had all these plans in place and we had discussed it in advance. Like what are the what ifs? We discussed as many of the continues as we possibly could in our training weekends in the months leading up to the event. And one of them was, what happens if one of the riders is incapacitated in some way, shape or form? And hopefully it wouldn't happen, but unfortunately it did. But we were prepared for that. We had to make a pretty critical decision around, do we stop and wait and forego the opportunity to race? Having done an assessment of John's condition, I mean, it was pretty evident that he had some significant injuries, but they weren't life-threatening. And he graciously gave us permission to carry on doing the race, and we elected to carry on without him. And he didn't make it to the finish line, unfortunately. So that was a, a real hard piece for all of us, I think, to go through because he was critical to the race organization, the race logistics, the race preparation, driving the team, the morale of the team. He's got a pretty unique character and personality, which is very warming to most people. It was hard to leave somebody behind and decide to carry on, but we did. In the interest of the bigger goal of getting to the finish line, in our, at that stage, we thought the seven-day target's probably gone out the window. And we thought, well, let's just do the race for John, like because it's about him, it's about us. So it sort of changed our focus a little bit, our mindset to having him very much in our thoughts and doing the race for a different reason albeit we managed to get to the finish line. Yeah, it definitely spurred us on, the support crew as well, knowing that John and one of the support crew had to go off with him to take look after him. Obviously, there was administration booking flights to 
I think it was Jersey. They went to a hospital and had a couple of days there and then come and met us at the finish in the end, which was fantastic. But there was a whole culture shift there, I think, in terms of the organisation and also the planning and the mindset of us all. And we then had to quickly change. So obviously a three-man team where one on the road, one in the support car, and one in the Winnebago as best we can, or two in the car if we needed to bang the miles out. Because I think within a few hours, we realised that actually, and if John's listening, we're probably going quicker because he's not riding now. <laughs> but we did quickly do the maths and realize well, actually seven days is still doable again now so let's have a little look at it you know in terms of what the average speed needs to be now how slicker we can get the logistics and minimize that stop time and i think being a couple of days out from the end and done almost 70 percent, 80 percent of the race i think everybody knew it was almost that last push to get there now and it certainly pulled us all together like any sense of adversity does it either makes you or breaks you and i think as sad it was for John and obviously we were all concerned about him I think it did push us on to dig out a little bit deeper to make sure mm. we got there because it was doable so fast forward yeah. then so down to a team of three obviously increased mileage for all of you and the Appalachian Mountains up ahead but I do remember getting to the top of the Appalachians and I think if I remember right Matt was on a really strong day around about then he was pedalling so strong day six going into day seven the point where he just wanted to stay out I think he was on one of those days where he couldn't feel the chain you know I think it comes around once in 30 years it's a big, huge, long descent and flat ride into Washington. And my last memory was riding down almost like a freeway almost. Can you remember that? We were like, yeah, oh yeah. my God, it's a six-lane motorway. Why are they making us finish on this road? Are we on the right route? Are we on the right track? But we were. <laughs> and then we pulled into that petrol station, which was the unofficial finish where you took your time from. And we'll say what the time was later on. And then we got held up there. And it was the first time I think a lot of us had a chance to go to the toilet, get a drink for like 18 hours or something. My beard had got even longer than normal. And then one of the nicest memories, I remember, is the four mill guys riding out to meet us. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember? We'd finished the race and then we rode into Annapolis. They graciously passed out the way for you four cyclists to rightly cross the finish line. And the overall time was... Before the spoiler alert, we should maybe talk about how the strategy changed. So I don't know if many of your listeners are keen cyclists, but we had a thousand miles to go whenever we left John. We changed our strategy from doing five hours on, five hours off with two riders to doing five hours on, 10 hours off as a single rider. And, you know, I both know a five-hour ride and <laughs> the best of days, it's, it's a long day in the saddle, you know? So expecting the three of us then to do five hours on, then have a 10-hour break and then go back on again, it was like, oh, crap, how am I going to get my head around that? Like all things, it's sometimes easier if you break things down into small parts, small chunks, and that's what we did. And we just went hour by hour, and you and the support crew were handing out all sorts of beverages. I just remember just thinking, I need something to eat, but I'm so sick of gels and cliff bars as much as they are great nutritional products. I just needed something. I think you might have stopped in a subway and just give me this huge six inch foot long or whatever it was sandwich and an iced tea, and it just got me going, you know. So that run into Annapolis. Maybe we should talk about one particular incident. I don't know whether it's appropriate or not, but the Winnebago hadn't necessarily been serviced quite as well <laughs> towards the end of the race, let's say, as maybe as it could have been. And that was virtue of the fact that we were thinking we can maybe make this target of just under seven days. And so we all as a team cut a few corners, one of which was we wouldn't necessarily drain the Winnebago. And I do remember one of my 10-hour stints off, 
the insides of the Winnebago coming up through the toilet and flushing around on the Winnebago floor. And it was like, oh my God, how are we going to manage to survive? I think whoever was in there at the time was sort of <laughs> driving or as a passenger with their head out the window, you know, trying to avoid this stuff that was slushing around on the floor. To add into that, obviously there's a legal thing there where you can't just pull on the side of the road and pull the pin. You've got to go to a formal campsite, yes. which we'd done you know, three or four times previous to it. But yeah. it was always a massive detour. And I mean, talking hours out of your day just to go and lift it. I think it got to the point where we'd probably missed it once. And it was like, right, well, it was a bit like something from The Hangover, the movie. I right? just get it done. As horrendous as this is, we need to get through it. But yeah, I do remember that. Maybe that's why I volunteered to drive the car so much the last couple of days. <laughs> I'll just drive. It's all right. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's and then the run into Annapolis. Yeah, there's three of us. We got on the road. Honestly, I don't know how I'm Matt Stevenson. Like, that guy is just a machine. I don't know how he got over those Appalachians. And we all did our stint, but him and Steve were just monumental. We either got fitter as the race went on and or we just thought, well, we've got this huge burst of adrenaline getting us towards the finish line. And we were close to that seven-day window. You're right, we pull into that garage and the clock stopped and it was six days, three hours and 57 seconds or something like that. And it was just like, wow. How did we ever, ever pull that off? Was this six days, 23 hours? We were literally a handful of minutes inside, literally. Yeah, you know what? I was looking back at my wrist for me. It was a typo in that. So yeah, yeah probably... I think it was. And I think there's a picture of us with the big clock and it's like six days, 23 six days, three hours. And, yeah, it was literally a handful of minutes in it. But to be honest with you, it was so glad to get towards the end and finish it and get some rest. I think that the process was so monumental as a learning experience and let's take that forward because we could talk about ram all day and what an amazing experience and the people i've spoke to in the last 10 years i've actually said to a lot of the governance within the military that they need to enter a team every year because the 20 people that can go or the 15 people that could go would learn so much in a week that it could potentially take you 6 12 18 months two years within a normal training and work cycle because there's so much going on in terms of situational leadership but who's taking control now it's not the most senior person it's the one who's fittest, strongest at that moment, or is thinking clearly, or has got the right idea, that flipped through. And let's be honest to the guys as well, I think I was nearly the most junior rank on it, all the way through to you guys, but I didn't feel like I never had a voice, so I couldn't make a decision, or I couldn't influence decision, you know, because of the relationships we all had. And I think yeah, that's yeah. one of the strong learnings I've taken from the military, is it doesn't matter how high up an organisation or low down you are, you've all got a part to play, and sometimes the limelight's on you. Is that something that you've taken from your time in the military, obviously culminating in a fantastic swan song, I guess, that Ram was, to then your experience and your career between then and now? Yeah, I think it has. And that culture that we created could be described as a very flat structure. I think what helped us in terms of our individual and collective success was a couple of things. One, real clarity. I think we were really clear from the outset that we needed people that could deliver certain capabilities within the team but also contribute to the bigger goal. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons learned that I use even today. You know, I think about the teams that I oversee and lead. Sometimes they say, hey, Pete or Peter, I need some more clarity. And that for me is a bit of a flag to say, well, let's sit down and work through that and do that together. I oftentimes, well, step out of that culture and go into more directive leadership style. I tend not to go there too often is my preferred style. You know, I do flex my leadership style. You know, and I think flexibility is key. We all had to adopt in RAM, which I think to your point is something that when the business world or in whatever team you're in, that particular trait and others help the team navigate their way through to achieve whatever goal they're trying to achieve. And that stood us very well. And that's still, we've seen that very recently with COVID. 
every organization, every team has been affected by this pandemic. And it doesn't stop at a border. What you're facing in the UK is similar to what we're facing in Canada, if not the same. And we've all got different restrictions and different regulations that are imposed on us. And we have to adapt our business models and our business operations and tactics to those. So I think, you know, the lessons learned that we had even going into and coming out of RAM around planning, strategy, you know, goal orientation, team culture, building a comprehensive team with the right capabilities. They were all the key things or the things that led to our success. And I think if anybody's listening and is in a position where they either lead and or contribute to a team or both, you know, holding the mirror up to yourself and saying, am I really adding value today? And if I'm not, what do I need to do differently? I think that's a key piece that anybody in any team can leverage and also being true to your role and being really clear about what do I have to deliver and how is that contributing to the overall goals? I think when we think about the organizational context, that's super key and super important. Yeah, and as you were chatting there, my mind was thinking about what I learned from not just the military time, but race across America. And like I said, it was probably one of the biggest and steepest learning curves and experiences I've had is people first. And we did, we had a task to achieve, but it wasn't all about the task. It was about the people and making that decision of having that six hours off allowed us all to invest, rest, recuperate, realign, refocus and go again. And that's one of many, but probably the biggest pivotal decision we made by putting people first, which allowed mm -hmm. us to achieve the goal. And that links to the work I've been doing and the organization's been doing this year around organizations response to challenges of COVID where everybody's obviously been dispersed to work from home. Every client we've worked with, the first part of the call we've said to the leaders is pick the phone up, ring them and ask them how they are. How are you doing? How are you setting in? Because if you're sending emails going, where's that report? Why are we at that target? Why are we doing this? And start thinking about the process and the task. You're going to lose them a little bit because everybody's hurting a little bit in terms of adjusting. And the leadership teams that did that, the team settled so much quicker and so much better because the simple message from the leadership was, we care about you as a human being. Have you got the right infrastructure? Have you got the right seat, the right desk to enable you to do your job? Don't worry about those deadlines. They're all going to step to the right. What else can we do for you? And that's such a strong message that anytime in the future, there's some challenges, go to people first because it's a great place to restart from. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, fast forwarding to, I guess, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis today where I lead and oversee a team in a large high-performance facility and being faced with a pandemic and what that means, I've often asked the question to the leadership team that I oversee, how are we going to continue to keep people and our people engaged, even though we've gone through changes within the business? I've also got an eye on six, 12 months, and hopefully we're somewhat out of this chaos by then. And I'm thinking, you know, to your point, Phil, I think we're only as good as the people around us and the people in front and behind us. And if as an organization, we've downsized to the lowest possible denominator that we just haven't got the capability to ramp back up again. It's going to be a long time before we can even get back to something that might resemble normal operations. So that's one of the things that I keep an eye on. And I guess the critical piece to that is bringing back people into an organization. And we're just into January. And I think statistically, is it the first Monday of the second week in January is probably the most depressing day for <laughs> people in the world. Coupled with that, we've got 10 months of being in a lockdown. I said to the team that I need you to think about ways in which we collectively can engage and re-engage, not just as internal teams, but also our clients, because they need constant engagement and they need to know that we're there for them whenever we can be.
You're absolutely right. You've seen this across your clients and I see it day to day that people in any business, we have to look after them and do that to the best of our ability with the resources we've got. Yeah, brilliant. And I think that's a great way to wrap up the pod because there's no doubt that if we keep chatting, we're going to go back to the Race Across America again and chat even more because we could chat all day and as we were chatting, more stories are coming back to me, but maybe that's for another day. Maybe when we get COVID out of the way, we're allowed to travel again and we can catch up and have a pint of Guinness, mate, and maybe, you never know, might treat you to a bowl of Lucky Charms, eh? <laughs> <laughs> that was a little bit of banter over the radio for the listeners in, so I kept Pete going. Pete, thanks so much for joining us on the P3 podcast. Really insightful. It's great to get just a bit of reminiscent for you and I, really, but also to take those key messages away and we're on the same page around people first, planning for the future, being flexible and adaptable and being flexible to your people and being a flexible leader. I think they're things that will really chime with our audience. So thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it today. Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really good to see you reconnect and to talk about a few old stories and hopefully it's been useful for the listeners. So pleasure and you know, hopefully... We can get together either in person or virtually again for another one, either here in Calgary or back in the UK. Always up for traveling once this bar's over, mate. Sure, I'm going to go for a ski as well. Thanks, mate. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the P3 podcast. If you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.